It's Sunday, September 11th, 2022, the 21st anniversary of one of the worst attacks on our country in our history. Let's talk about what we have learned and what we haven't on this edition of the all-new Doc Washburn Show. Welcome to the Voice of the Resistance with Doc Washburn. We are the show that pushes back against the Uniparty and lets you in on the news that traditional talk radio is all too often afraid to talk about. This is episode 237 of the all-new Doc Washburn Show. It's Sunday, September 11th, 2022. Just so you understand where I'm coming from, I was fired by one of the biggest radio companies in America, Cumulus Media, simply because I refused their vaccine mandate. More evidence comes out all the time that a lot of people are having serious negative reactions to the vaccines. Also, I will never call Joe Biden president because it's obvious the last U.S. presidential election was stolen. I will never pretend a man can become a woman, and I will never forget about the January 6th political prisoners most Republican politicians refuse to mention. And August 8th, 2022, the day the Biden regime's secret police conducted an unprecedented and unconstitutional raid on the home of a former president of the United States is also a day that shall live in infamy. So this is a really different kind of talk show. We're unmasked, uncensored, and unfiltered. If you would like to support what we do, Go to our website, docwashburn.com, and click on the button that says Become a Patron. Also, please remember to subscribe to our podcast so you don't miss an episode. Do you remember where you were on September 11, 2001? I remember where I was. I was doing the morning show at Talk Radio 101, Panama City Beach, Florida, when one of the sales guys at the radio company I worked for put a post-it note in front of my face saying a plane has hit the World Trade Center. I was in the middle of talking about something on the radio and I could not process that information. How could a little three or four seater little airplane get into, you know, midtown Manhattan, wind up hitting the, nothing made sense until right as we were going into the top of the hour news, Somehow we got the word that a jet had hit one of the World Trade Centers. And then we watched the second plane hit the second tower during the news. And that changed everything. Um, I have some more things I want to say about this. But a few years ago, I put together a musical montage from September 11, 2001 featuring voicemails left by people on the planes for their loved ones. And I put this montage together to honor our victims and our heroes from September 11th, 2001. So here it is, and I'll say some more on the other side. As Matt just mentioned, we have a breaking news story to tell you about. Apparently, a plane has just crashed into the World Trade Center here in New York City. It happened just a few moments ago, apparently. We have very little information available. Where were you when the world stopped turning? We just got a report in that there's been some sort of explosion at the World Trade Center in New York City. One report said, and we can't confirm any of this, that a plane may have hit one of the two towers of the World Trade Center. Were you in the yard with your wife and children? 
working on some stage in L.A. And you're looking at the uh, World Trade Center. We understand that a plane has crashed into the World Trade Center. We don't know anything more than that. We don't know if it was a commercial aircraft. Did you stand there in shock at the sight of that black smoke rising against that blue sky? You are looking at live pictures. Apparently, a plane has crashed into one of the upper floors of the World Trade Center. Now, according to eyewitnesses, it appeared that the plane, and we don't know exactly what that plane is, was having some Difficulty. It was being described by witnesses as listing back and forth from wingtip to wingtip. And it is difficult to tell from this perspective, but we are being told that the plane may be embedded in that upper floor of the World Trade Center. Did you shout out in anger fear for your neighbor, or did you just sit down and cry? We have a very tragic alert for you right now. An incredible plane crash into the World Trade Center here at the uh, lower tip of Manhattan. It's believed a 737 has crashed into this speculation at this point, but at least three floors taken out, crashed into the side of the building. Joining us right now, uh, one of the producers with Fox Report, Owen Mugan on the scene. Owen, what do you know? What do you see? Where are you? Yeah, Ryan, I'm on the roof of my building, which is about five blocks to the south of the World Trade Center. I'm looking, I'm looking right now at the World Trade Center. There's a massive gate hole uh, on the second tower. It's about uh, 15 stories from the roof. Uh, it's just unbelievable to look at. There's a right. massive hole. There, in it, it, it looks like something out of a movie. There is a huge Whoa. hole in the side of tower number one. Did you weep for the children who lost their dear loved ones? Pray for the ones who don't know. Oh, another one just hit. Something else just hit. A very large plane just oh. flew directly over my building and there's been another collision. Can you see it? I yes. can see it on the shot. Oh my. Something else has you know just been that just saw like a plane circling the building. It is in the other building. We just saw a plane circling the building a second ago on the shot right before I that. I think there may have been another impact. Can you tell? I just heard another very loud bang and a very large plane that might have been a DC-9 or a 747 just flew past my window, and I think it may have hit the Trade Center right. again. Did you rejoice for the people who walked from the rubble and sobbed for the ones left below? Oh, my God. Oh, my God. That looks like a second plane. Has just I didn't see a plane go in. That, that just exploded. We I, just saw another plane coming in from the side. You did. I did that was out of absolute Yes, and that's you. the second explosion. You could see the plane come in just from the right-hand side of the screen. So this looks like it is some sort of a concerted effort to attack the World Trade Center that is underway in downtown New York. Did you burst out with pride with the red, white, and blue? who died just doing what they do. Oh, there's another one. Another plane just hit. <gasps> right. Oh, my God. Another plane has just hit. It hit another building. Flew right into the middle of it. Explosion. My God, it's right in the middle of the building. This one into the East Tower. Yes. Yes. Right in the middle of the building. Did you look up to heaven for some kind of answer and look at yourself and what really matters? There was another one. We just saw another one. We just saw another one apparently go. Another plane just flew into the second tower. This has to be deliberate, folks. I'm just a singer of simple songs. I'm not a real political man. I watch CNN, but I'm not sure I can tell you.
was so serious. I could tell from the sound of his voice, he knew this was something he might not get out of. And I think that he just needed to, to let us know that he loved us. The voice message that Walter left is still on his business phone, which I've kept in his office. I've probably listened to the message hundreds of times. Everybody has told me that, that has lost loved ones that this, you lose the sound of their voice that you can't remember the sound of people's voices after they've gone. And I tend to think that that's true. I think it's a good reminder to have Walter's message for my daughters that they can continue to hear him. Did you open your eyes? Hope it never happened. Close your 
your eyes and not go to sleep. Yeah, hi. Uh, I'm on the 106th floor of the uh, World Trade Center. We just had an explosion. The 106th floor? Yes. 106, okay. We have smoke and it, it's pretty bad. We can't get down the stairs. All right. We have about 100 people up here. Do not leave, okay? There's a fire or an explosion or something in the building. All right, I want you to stay where you are. Yes. All right, we're there. We're coming up to get you. See the smoke coming up from outside the windows, yep. All right, we're on the way. Just sit tight. All right, just sit tight. We're on the way. All right, please hurry. Sunset, first time in ages. Speak to some stranger on the street. Hey, mom, it's Brad. Uh, just wanted to call and let you know. I'm sure that you heard that a plane crashed into World Trade Center One. We're fine. We're in World Trade Center Two. I'm not obviously alive and well over here, but uh, obviously a pretty scary experience. I saw a guy fall out of probably the 91st story all the way down. So. You're welcome to give a call here. I think uh, we'll be here all day, but uh, give me a call back later. Love you. Did you lay down at night, think of tomorrow, go out and buy you a gun? Mom, it's Steven. Um, my plane, uh, my building got hit by a plane, and right now it's, uh, I think I'm okay, I'm safe now, but it's smoky. I just want to say how much I love you, and uh, I will uh, call you when I'm safe. Okay, Mom? Bye. Did you turn off that violent whole movie you're watching? Turn on runs. Jim Gartenberg joins us. He was on the 86th floor of, uh, I'm not sure which tower, was it the east, north or south, Jim? It's World Trade Center 1, and it's not was. I am here, and I'm stuck right now. Now, you, are you above, Jim, or below? I have no idea. I have no idea where the plane hit. I'm, it's my understanding that it's a plane. Jim, um, there are two planes. One went into one tower, one went into the other tower. What do, what do you see around you? I mean, are you in, are you in smoke? Are you in fire? I mean, the, the first thing that I want to make clear is that I'm stuck on the 86th floor. Um, a fire door has trapped us. Debris has fallen around us, and part of the core of the building is blown out. How many people are with you, Jim? I'm with one other person, and I'm told that people are aware of this. I'm on the 86th floor on the east side of the building facing the East River. And what time if did I'm you get... I'm on the air. I want to tell anybody that has a family member that may be in the building that the situation is under control for the moment, and the danger has not increased. So please all family members take it easy did you go to a church and hold hands with some strangers stand in line and give your own blood there was a soft-spoken calm gentleman on the other end he told me that there's three people that have taken over the flight At that point i asked him his name he told me todd beamer he was from cranberry new jersey did you make a conscious decision not to tell todd about the world trade center why yes because um, I wanted him to have hope. I wanted him to think that he still had a chance. I didn't want him to feel like it was just totally hopeless and he definitely didn't have a choice and he knew he was going to die. I didn't want him to have that feeling. Did you just stay home and cling tight to your family? Thank God you had somebody to love. When he wanted to pray, was your sense then that, that he knew that... Yes, I did. I felt that he knew at that time because he had said, oh, Jesus, help us. And then he said, Lisa, would you recite the Lord's Prayer with me? And I knew that he knew at that time that it wasn't much left for him to do. I'm just a singer of simple 
songs. I'm not a real political man. What do you think that this country needs to know about the men and women who were on board Flight 93? They're all heroes in my eyes. They really are. They all pitched together and they did what they thought was the best thing to do at that time. And um, I feel that Todd played a great role in that because when he told the guys, are you ready? I assumed that they were waiting on his cue. Then they responded to him and he said, okay, let's roll. I watch CNN, but I'm not sure I can tell you she called me that Saturday morning. I told her, I said, you have two boys, David and Andrew? She said, yes, yes, I do. I said, you're expecting your third child? She said, yes, he told you all of that. I said, yes, he did. And he wanted me to let you know that he loved you and his family very much. And I gave her a message and kept my promise. ashamed to say I uh, I can never get through that without being reduced to tears I uh, if uh, if it doesn't hit you you don't have a heart left beating in your chest I'll just put you that way I can never get through it without just being reduced to tears. I want to say thank you so much once again to our advertisers, our friends, for making it possible for us to do what we do here five times a week on the Doc Washburn Show. We are uh, we're trying to make a difference in this world. We're trying to do good works on this earth. And we couldn't do it without our advertisers. So thank you once again. And I've got a lot more to share with you. This, of course, is also the 10th anniversary of the Benghazi attacks in which our guys were left for dead. And um, I got some stuff I want to say about that, too. That's uh, all coming up here on the Doc Washburn Show. If you try to buy a car recently, 
You realize there's such a chip shortage, you may have a hard time finding what you're looking for. People I know have actually bought vehicles from hundreds of miles away from where they live. That's where Red River Your Way comes in. Red River Your Way is a big old car dealership in the middle of the USA that believes in freedom, including your freedom to buy a car, truck, van, or SUV the way you want to. You can buy online, and they'll drive it to you no matter where you are. Red River Your Way wants to make your car buying experience as easy and transparent as possible. That's why they've added technology to their website to put you in complete control of your payment options and allows you to complete the entire purchase process online. But don't worry, Red River experts are still here to help you every step of the way if you have any questions. Red River makes it so easy. As you browse their selection, you'll see each vehicle has a button that says Explore Payment Options on it. Clicking that button guides you through a few easy questions and then create personalized payment options you have complete control over. All you have to do is adjust your preferences, and all the math happens automatically so you can figure out what monthly payment works best for your budget. Red River Your Way makes car buying online easy. Your whole car buying process is completely transparent. If you want to buy a car, truck, van, or SUV, order online from the nationwide car dealer that believes in freedom, the dealer that will deliver your vehicle to your front door no matter where you live, redriveryourway.com. You will be glad you did. All right, let me ask you this. Does your financial advisor take the time to listen and get to know you? Is your financial strategy personalized for you and your family? Will your financial advisor be there as your life and financial situations change? When you work with Jonathan Presswood, he focuses on what's important to you. He uses an established process to help you achieve your unique goals, whether that's preparing for retirement, making your money last in retirement, planning your estate or inheritance, preparing for the unexpected, or anything else. Jonathan Presswood can help. Now, what should you do if you leave a job and have a 401k or other retirement plan? Or if you're getting close to retirement or already in retirement? Call my friend, Jonathan Presswood, today. He'll help you create a personalized financial strategy backed by the advice, tools, and resources to help you reach your goals. And he'll partner together with you to help your strategy stay on track no matter what life throws at you. Listen, we can all dream of having a perfect retirement, but how many of us will actually experience it? No matter where you are today, Jonathan Presswood is offering a free retirement analysis to figure out where you'd like to be and what it will take to get you there. And there's no obligation. Contact Jonathan Presswood, a financial advisor with Edward Jones Investments, today at 501-303-4844. Again, that's 501-303-4844. Don't wait. Call Jonathan Presswood today at 501-303-4844. Now, if you're like me, you can't remember phone numbers, go to our website, docwashburnshow.com. Just click on the link to Jonathan Presswood at Edward Jones. Edward Jones, making sense of investing. Member SIPC. Thank you so much again to our friends, our advertisers, Jonathan Presswood at Edward Jones Financial Advisors, and Mitch Ward, who is the owner, the proprietor of RedRiverYourWay.com, the big old car dealership in the middle of the USA. That believes in freedom, including your freedom to buy the car, truck, or van, or SUV of your choice the way you want to online and have it delivered to your front door anywhere in the continental U.S. The Benghazi attacks. At one point, after the attacks, 
Hillary Clinton was under oath, and Senator Rand Paul asked her if uh, we had been running guns out of Benghazi, Libya, through Turkey to the Middle East. And she sounded shocked. Senator, running guns out of Benghazi? Well, I've certainly never been asked that before. I have to take that under advisement. In other words, she wasn't going to answer the question. Just so you know. Just so you know, she wasn't going to answer the question. Um, I've mentioned before uh, Trey Gowdy. Trey Gowdy. I interviewed Trey Gowdy way before I knew there was going to be a Benghazi committee with uh, Trey Gowdy as its head, and I said, uh, Representative Gowdy, Colonel Dave Hunt wrote over at Breitbart that everybody asking who gave the stand-down order to prevent people from coming to the aid of our people in Benghazi, they're all asking the wrong question. Dave Hunt, the colonel, says the right question to ask is, where is the cross-border authority? That's a document the president has to sign for our military to go across national boundaries to do anything. Obama had to sign a cross-border authority for us to take out Osama bin Laden in Pakistan. He even had to sign a cross-border authority for us to take out the uh, Somali pirates who were holding our ship captain off the coast of Somalia. So Barack Obama is saying, look, I met with the Joint Chiefs, the uh, Chairman of the Joint Chiefs and Secretary of Defense at 5 p.m. Eastern on that day and said, do whatever you have to to protect our guys. Okay, well, where's the cross-border authority document that you signed? So I told Trey Gowdy that way before I knew there was going to be a Benghazi committee, way before I knew he was going to be the chairman of it. And many moons later, when he released his report, I did a search to see if that 800-page report, cross-border authority, was anywhere in there, and guess what? It wasn't. So what a shock that this same guy, a few days, a few days after the 2020 election was saying that Donald Trump should just go ahead and concede and you know come back and fight another day. Trey Gowdy talks a good game. Anyway, I, I didn't mean to get off on a bash Trey Gowdy on this uh, 21st anniversary of uh, the September 11th, 2001 attacks on our country, but it's also the 10th anniversary of the Benghazi murders. So, Trey, that's how you wound up on my show again. My friend Robert Spencer has a new article out at Jihad Watch entitled 21 Years Ago Today, Some People Did Something and No One Cares. And I need to share it with you because it's, uh, sadly, an example of one man's perspective, which I happen to agree with, on how far we've fallen. He said, the September 11th, 2001 jihad terror attacks were 21 years ago, and Americans have moved on. Representative Ilhan Omar, Democrat Mogadishu, was widely ridiculed and even reviled a few years ago for breezily characterizing 
9-11 as the day when some people did something. But she has had the last laugh. The coverage of the attacks every year is a study in avoidance with the establishment media focusing on anything and everything besides the motivating ideology and goals of the attackers. As always, the media's favorite preoccupation is the persistence of Muslim victimhood. Every 9-11 anniversary, we are inundated with stories about how Muslims suffered on that day and continue to suffer from racist and unwarranted suspicion that has made their lives in America, a land to which they came with so much hope, a veritable living hell. Another conspicuous omission is coverage of the persistence of the threat of which 9-11 was one manifestation. Most Americans assume that that threat, insofar as it ever existed, has passed and no longer need trouble anyone. Recently, an emailer taunted me by informing me that I was very 2005, and I got the point. Sounding the alarm about the jihad threat at this late date, really? It would seem passe to me also in this age of the confidently advancing authoritarianism of the left to still be touting the global jihad as a threat to freedom today, were it not for the fact that there are still jihad terror attacks every day in this world, more than I am able to report on. And for another reason as well. What many people who are well aware of the menace, the left's thirst to crush dissent poses for free people everywhere, fewer are aware of the reason for the persistent fact that puzzles so many people. Why leftists are generally so contemptuous of Christianity and determined to snuff it out, while on the other hand so welcoming and even obsequious toward Islam. The answer lies in their shared tendency toward authoritarianism and totalitarianism. A hadith, kind of like a Muslim scripture, puts into Muhammad's mouth the saying, you should listen to and obey your ruler even if he was an Ethiopian or black slave whose head looks like a raisin. That is the Hadith Bukhari 9.93.7142. Now this statement has become notorious because of its casual racism. The most outlandish ruler Muhammad can think of and the one who appears to be least worthy of obedience, as far as he's concerned, is a black man. Overlooked, however, is the absolutism of Muhammad's statement. One must obey the ruler even when the ruler appears absurd and unworthy of obedience, at least from the Muslim perspective. How convenient such a statement is for those forces in the world today who wish us to accept the left's absurd rule today with all the reality-denying claims that go with it. Men can become women, drag queens belong in primary schools, the ridiculous dementia patient in the White House is a competent and capable leader, and all the rest of the absurdities. Throughout its history, Islam has lent itself to authoritarian rule, with Turkey 
being the sole example of a secular republic in a majority Muslim state, and a poor example at best as modern Turkey was founded upon an explicit rejection of political Islam, and now Turkish secularism is rapidly eroding under pressure from its Islamizing president, Erdogan. It's understandable, then, that those who wish to crush all opposition to their rule would see that crushing religion itself is impossible, but that one religion above all the others will give them a docile, obedient population as long as its own freedom to grow is respected. No problem there as far as the leftist political elites are concerned. They're happy to foster Islam's growth in the West so as to break down the free societies they hate so much and complete their victory over the Judeo-Christian tradition that has given the world such inconvenient notions as the irreducible dignity of every human person. So the propaganda media establishment gives us endless stories of the benign and beneficial aspects of Islam and of the victimhood of Muslims at the hands of white, racist, Christian, so-called Islamophobes and magnificent contributions of Islam to human civilization. It's all meant to quiet resistance to their mass migration agenda as well as ultimately to their crushing of the freedom of speech. And it's working well. As a result of all this, 21 years after 9-11, most people assume that sounding a warning about the jihad threat is as unwarranted and in poor taste as sounding a warning about Imperial Japan would have been on December 7, 1962. But you see, by 1962, Imperial Japan was a dimming memory. The jihad, with help from its powerful leftist friends, continues to advance. That advance will eventually become clear to everyone who dismisses it and denies it now. But by then, there will be no time for reconsideration or recriminations. So that is the great Robert Spencer over Jihad Watch. New article entitled, 21 Years Ago Today, Some People Did Something and No One Cares. I'm old enough to remember when Joe Biden was running for president and he said it's a shame that uh, the schools, the public schools, don't teach Islam more than they do. Remember that? He did. He certainly did. And now he is saying that those who disagree with him, those of us who disagree with the Biden regime, are not just political opponents, but we are dangers to the country itself, dangers to democracy. If you've been listening to the Doc Washburn show, you realize that that is the stance he took at his recent I Hate You America speeches in Wilkes-Barre, Pennsylvania, and then a couple of nights later in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. So we come to Daniel Greenfield, a Shulman journalism fellow, at the David Horowitz Freedom Center, an investigative journalist and writer focusing on the radical left and Islamic terrorism, and he has an article new out today also at Jihad Watch calling The Coming Outlawing of the Republican Party. And in it he says Republicans want to hold the majority 
and coexist with Democrats, while Democrats, under the influence of the left, want to eliminate Republicans. This fundamental difference between the two sides was on display during Biden's fascist rant in Philadelphia, where he denounced half the country as a threat to democracy. And it would be a mistake to imagine that all the talk of a threat to democracy is mere rhetoric. Another basic difference between the two parties is that Republicans are politically unserious. Politicians, pundits, and influencers spend so much time virtue signaling that they think words don't matter. Democrats are quite serious. The Republican refusal to take them at their word, to believe that their histrionic rhetoric represents a serious policy agenda, is why things are so bad. Surely, Beltway GOP figures will reassure Democrats aren't serious about adding states, adding Supreme Court seats, a trillion-dollar coin, or using unlimited dictatorial executive authority. But what if they are actually serious about these things? Biden's speech was the tip of a much more dangerous iceberg. After Biden took over, Democrat activist groups began a push to disqualify Republicans who had participated in the January 6th protest from elected office based on the 14th Amendment. Adopted after the Civil War, is mostly notable for abolishing slavery, but Section 3 also banned anyone from holding elected office if they have, quote, engaged in insurrection or rebellion or given aid or comfort to the enemies thereof, unquote. Aimed at Confederates from the Civil War, most would have considered this a dead letter, but the left excels at digging up obscure legal fossils and making use of them. The insurrection lawsuits have targeted members of Congress, Senator Ron Johnson and local officials. But by defining anyone who questioned the 2020 presidential election results as an insurrectionist or having provided aid and comfort, the scope could be vastly larger. A New York Times article lists 147 Republicans who voted to overturn election results. Lists like this are proliferating in time for the midterms, and they are meant to be actionable. The criminalization of the Republican Party achieved its first real win when a New Mexico judge removed Otero County Commissioner Cory Griffin from office over his role in the Capitol riot using Section 3. But there were more troubling developments earlier this year when the Fourth Circuit ruled in a case involving the disqualification of U.S. Representative Madison Cawthorn that the 1872 Amnesty Act did not nullify Section 3 of the amendment. A federal judge in Georgia ruled similarly in a case involving an election challenge to another House member, though that case later collapsed. The Section 3 campaign lost in Wisconsin, North Carolina, and Arizona, but it's still alive. The wording of the Amnesty Act is quite clear. It states that all political disabilities imposed by the third section of the 14th Article of Amendments of the Constitution of the United States are hereby removed from all persons whomsoever. But an Obama judge argued that pure common sense showed that Section 3 still applies. 
Her ruling would have been dramatically different if conservatives were applying this to Kamala Harris, who helped bail out Black Lives Matter protesters, or Black Lives Matter rioters, for that matter. But the law matters less than the agenda. Some of these efforts have run into legal roadblocks, but they have also seen success in using Section 3 to establish a political test for office. That political test is allegiance to Biden and the Democrat Party. During the Cold War, efforts to criminalize and remove communists operating within the Democrat Party and its allied cultural institutions were abandoned. The communists don't intend to be so generous to their old enemies now that they actually run the Democrat Party. The legal counter-arguments are obvious. The amnesties of 1872 and 1898 had been intended to nullify Section 3, but because the Constitution was never actually modified, they may not matter. Section 3 of the 14th Amendment was arguably unconstitutional to begin with, but which Supreme Court justice will be ready to take a red pencil to a key civil rights amendment? There was no actual insurrection and no insurrection prosecutions or declarations holding any legal status, but these are legal arguments that will have to be ruled on by judges, and they're a poor guarantee of what is really at stake here, which is the right of political opposition or the First Amendment. A Congressional Research Service paper on disqualifying Republicans suggested that a presidential or congressional declaration would be enough and that anyone who provided words of encouragement or the expression of an opinion could have engaged in insurrection. Alternatively, a simple majority could be used to refuse to seat House or Senate members. Last year, Crew, Common Cause, Move On, the Constitutional Accountability Center, and other leftist activist groups wrote an open letter to Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer urging the use of Section 3 to prevent Trump from holding office. But their scope is much wider than that. Crew, which stands for Citizens for Responsibility and Ethics in Washington, which is a 501c3 and is supposed to be nonpartisan, was behind the successful New Mexico disqualification lawsuit. Its leader argued Section 3 of the 14th Amendment can and should be used to bar anyone who engaged in the insurrection. How is the word engaged defined? Well, in the case of Donald Trump, there's a false insistence that he bears responsibility for violence during the Capitol riot, even though he was opposed to it. The Constitutional Accountability Center quoted an opinion suggesting that anyone who engaged in any overt act for the purpose of promoting the rebellion may well be said to have engaged in rebellion. Both CAC and the CRS paper promote the idea that the expression of an opinion is enough. These are some of the reasons why future presidents and legislators hurriedly dismantled the emergency Civil War-era measures that were grotesquely unconstitutional to such a degree that they would have outlawed the existence of any political dissent. But they did so in a clumsy and incomplete fashion, and those measures 
along with even more clumsily written civil rights era legislation, pose an existential threat to civil rights and political freedom in this country. And long after the end of the Civil War, Section 3 of Amendment 14 has been revived by the former Confederate Party turned communist that has the country's most consistent track record of treason with the aim of overthrowing the Constitution. Leftists didn't oppose McCarthyism. They just wanted to be the ones dispensing it. Beltway Republicans shrug at this sort of thing as posturing. They refuse to believe that this is a serious statement of intent. And even if it is, they privately argue it won't go past a few state officials, some fringe House members, or Trump at worst. They're sleepwalking into disaster. This particular bid to outlaw the Republican Party may go nowhere, but if so, it won't be because of Republican opposition. It will be because leftist groups decide to prioritize their resources on more immediate programs rather than launching a dramatic moonshot. But it remains part of the agenda. And Biden's speech shows that the agenda is being entertained by the White House. The midterm and the next presidential election are being defined not in terms of policies and issues, but as a response, in Biden's words, to, quote, a threat to this country, unquote, posed by a, quote, Republican Party, unquote, that is, quote, dominated by MAGA Republicans, unquote. Now, that is rhetoric. But among Democrats, unlike Republicans, rhetoric is a political program, not just fundraising text messages. Democrats and their allied nonprofit groups have laid out a political program for reviving Section 3 of Amendment 14 to bar most Republicans from holding office. They have spent money on it. They have field-tested it in courts. They have gotten Obama and Biden judges along with prominent legal experts to sign off on it, and only fools would assume that they don't seriously mean it or that they just thought of it. You see, Republicans couldn't bring themselves to bite the bullet during the Cold War or 9-11 and respond to a global conflict and abetted by the domestic left by cleaning house. No, no. Conservatives missed the most important point about the left's hysteria over the fairly minor Cold War investigations of communism or the Patriot Act's light touch on Islamic terrorism. How is it possible to seriously accuse mild-mannered men like Dwight D. Eisenhower or George W. Bush of being fascist dictators in complete contrast to their unambitious domestic programs. The left was not making bad faith arguments. Talk to a leftist and you will see that leftists genuinely believed that Republicans were prepared to use national emergencies to wipe them out of existence. Why did they believe that? Because it's what they would do in their place. And now they're actually doing it. That is the great Daniel Greenfield over Jihad Watch, article entitled The Coming Outlawing of the Republican Party. Again, I don't know if you're hearing this anywhere else. 
But we try to make the Doc Washburn Show different. We try to warn you of what's coming up. I don't ever want you to be able to say, Doc, why didn't you tell us? Why didn't you warn us? I just believe it's my duty to tell you, my duty to warn you, including very unpleasant predictions. I'm not very good at making predictions, but other people are. And uh, so that's what I try to do. I try to um, give you warnings about what appears to be coming down the pike. So what do we do about it? What do we do about it? Life is short. What do we do about it? Let's talk about that coming up. In the meantime, thank you again to our advertisers for making it possible for us to get warnings out on a daily basis here on the Doc Washburn Show. Hey, I'd like to help you with some health issues. You have migraines, neck pain, back pain, vertigo, acid reflux, eczema, problems with your blood sugar, maybe even hay fever. Okay, let's do a little test. Look in the mirror. Does one eye look bigger than the other? Are your eyes off balance? Are your shoulders off balance? Look at a picture of yourself. Are you tilting your head to the left or the right instead of sitting up or standing up straight? If the answer to any of these questions is yes, you probably need to get your atlas adjusted. That's how I got rid of my migraines, neck pain, and hay fever. Let me explain to you how it works because it's the best kept secret in American healthcare. Your skull weighs anywhere from 8 to 15 pounds. It rests on the top bone of your spinal column, the atlas which only weighs two ounces. So it's really easy for your atlas to get out of alignment. If it does, your whole spinal column can get kinked up like a chain, restricting your central nervous system's ability to send impulses to the rest of your body. It can affect your respiratory system, reproductive system, circulatory system, even digestive system. And yes, it can cause migraines, neck pain, back pain, acid reflux, eczema, vertigo, problems with your blood sugar. Do yourself a favor. If you're in Arkansas, call my friends at the Arkansas Upper Cervical Center, 501-279-2009, for a free consultation to see if you need to get your atlas adjusted, because you probably do. If you're outside central Arkansas, go to their website, turnmypoweron.com, and click on Find a Doctor Near You. And I sure hope you can. Thank you once again to Dr. J.R. Crabtree and his wife, Dr. Tanya Crabtree. Our advertisers over at TurnMyPowerOn.com, really appreciate you guys. Our advertisers, our doctors, our friends, they have been so helpful to my wife and me and so many people that we know. All right, coming up, what should we do? But in the meantime, hit it, Brian. We interrupt this program to bring you a special report. It's the Doc Washburn Show Tweet of the Day. Brought to you by RedRiverYourWay.com. Red River Your Way, big old car dealership in the middle of the USA that believes in your freedom to buy the car, truck, van, or SUV of your choice the way you want to online. Have it delivered to your front door anywhere in the continental USA. All right. Today's tweet of the day 
is a three-parter. Okay, the first tweet is a video of Chuck Todd, Meet the Press, asking Kamala Harris a question. Would you call the border secure? I think that there is no question that we have to do what the president and I asked Congress to do. Is the first request we make, pass a bill. She, she, she has no idea how to answer state questions. To create a pathway to citizenship. The border is secure. Please. But we also have a broken immigration system, in particular over the last four years before we came in, and it needs to be fixed. We're going to have two million people cross this border for the first time ever. You're confident this border is secure. Mark your calendar. Tough question from a guy at NBC. Chuck Todd, meet the press. Amazing. We have a secure border in that that is a priority for any nation, including ours and our administration. But there are still a lot of problems. Uh, she just goes on and on and on. It's, it's just word salad. She doesn't have a clue. Um, I don't even know if she's smart enough to realize the border's not secure. He said 2 million people come across the border. I don't think she understands how that's germane to the subject of hand. She probably doesn't even know what the word germane means. But anyway, um, Chuck Todd asked her another question about you and me. Here it is. Look, we're at the 21st um, marking, if you will, of the September 11th attacks. Yeah. This was a foreign terrorist attacking our democracy, yeah. attacking this country. Yeah. We're now, as a nation, battling a threat from within. Is the threat hmm. equal or greater than what we faced after 9-11? Um, there's no way in the world she can answer that question. She's not smart enough. Interesting question. Um, I have held many elected offices as district attorney, attorney general, senator, now vice president. And there's an oath that we always take, which is to defend and uphold our constitution against all enemies, foreign and domestic. We don't compare the two in the oath, but we know they both can exist and we must defend against it. Yeah, just more word, word salad. I mean, he, he gave her a softball underhanded and she didn't even realize, well, here's your opportunity to say what dementia Joe's been saying all the time, that MAGA Republicans are a, a great threat to our national security, democracy, whatever. So here is dementia Joe again on the 21st anniversary of the nine 11 attacks making the case again that you and I are domestic enemies. It's not enough to gather and remember each September 11th, those we lost more than two decades ago, because on this day, it is not about the past, it's about the future. We have an obligation, a duty, a responsibility to defend, preserve, and protect our democracy. The very democracy that guarantees the rights of freedom that those terrorists on 9-11 sought to bury in the burning fire and smoke and ash. Okay. So he compares us to jihad terrorists. So I don't know if you consider this possibility, but the bad guys might actually win. So what do we do then? You know, life is short. 
the Bible says man is like uh, like the grass, like a flower in the field, who's here one day and gone the next, and his place doesn't remember it. I'm sure you're aware that of the almost 3,000 people murdered on September 11, 2001, not one of them had any idea that that day was going to be his or her last day on this earth. Most of them were probably healthy and figured they had long lives ahead of them. But for almost 3,000 people, it was their last day on this earth. And immediately, each one of them had to stand before God and give an account of what he or she had done on this earth. So I'm, I want to be friendly. I want to show I care about you. I want to have compassion for you. So let me ask you, have you made plans for what happens to you when you die? And I'm not talking about whether you have your body buried or cremated. I'm talking about you. Once you die, that body is no longer you. Got it? I mean, look, I hope you have a long and happy life, but none of us have our next breath guaranteed. Okay? So I want you to listen to me for a few minutes as if your life depended on it because that's exactly what I'm going to talk to you about. And this could very well be the most important message you have ever heard in your life. I'm going to start off by reading to you a passage from a book in the New Testament of the Bible that no one knows who wrote it. And it's called Hebrews. And in the 10th chapter of the book of Hebrews, it says, For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the Spirit of grace? For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. But recall the former days when, after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners of those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Therefore do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. For you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. For yet a little while, and the coming one 
will come and will not delay, but my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. Okay, so that is from the 10th chapter of the book of Hebrews and the New Testament. And then we have some words from the pastor of my church, Tim Reed, Covenant Presbyterian Church, Little Rock, Arkansas, which he shared this morning, and I knew as soon as I heard what he said, I had to share this with you. And it goes something like this. Stop. Turn back. Warnings alert us to dangerous and sometimes life-threatening situations, and they incentivize us to heed the warning and live safer and wiser lives. The White Mountain National Forest, mostly in New Hampshire, has a warning sign posted that reads, Stop! The area ahead has the worst weather in America. Many have died there from exposure, even in the summer. Turn back now if the weather is bad. In bad weather, one might have a reasonable expectation of death. In our text today, in Hebrews, we find the writer of Hebrews warning, stop, turn back. His original readers were being pressured to apostatize, to reject Christ, and revert to Judaism. Be warned, he pleads, apostasy has life-threatening consequences. Stop from the path of rejecting Christ and turn back to a life of faithful perseverance. Before we cover the warning of this text and the exhortation to persevere in faith, we will consider what the Bible teaches in general about judgment and hell. First, the realities of judgment and hell. Judgment and hell are ignored by most of mankind in general. Some who identify as Christians deny that a loving God would judge sin and punish sinners. Others in the church, annihilationists, believe God will punish the wicked, but deny everlasting torment. Instead, the wicked will suffer annihilation. But what does the Bible teach about judgment and hell? First, judgment. The Bible teaches that every person will physically die. At Christ's second coming, all the dead will be raised, and together with all that are still alive, at that time will then face judgment, the final judgment before Christ at the end of the age. The Bible teaches a chapter earlier in the ninth chapter of Hebrews And just as it is appointed for a man to die once, and after that comes judgment, which denies the notion of reincarnation or any circular view of history. Also, Ecclesiastes in the 12th chapter, for God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. Also, the 5th chapter of 2 Corinthians says, "For, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due 
for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Okay? Now let's deal with the concept of hell. The Bible teaches the verdict rendered at the judgment will be one of two eternal destinies. The regenerate, those, no, not degenerate, the regenerate, those whom God chose to be united to Christ in saving faith and heirs of the eternal inheritance will be ushered into heaven and the unregenerate, those whom God passed by and left in the original state hard-hearted and dead in sin, will be remanded to hell. The Bible declares in the 25th chapter of the book of the Gospel of Matthew, when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on the left. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. In the 18th chapter of Matthew, we read, And if your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life crippled or lame than with two hands or two feet to be thrown into the eternal fire. In the ninth chapter of the book of Mark, we read, And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. The reality of judgment and hell for the unregenerate is horrible. Annihilation would actually be better. Being separated from God and his wrath would be better. The Bible teaches the terrible reality of God's judgment on the unrighteous remanded to hell where one suffers the wrath of God in everlasting torment. Stop. Do not ignore judgment and hell. Do not think a holy God will leave his justice unsatisfied. Do not count on dying and that being the end of you. Turn back to Scripture and understand judgment and hell are real. Second, the warning. If one touches a red-hot burner, one should expect pain and a bad burn. Conversely, warns the author of Hebrews, if one who expressed faith in Christ, rejects him, one should expect judgment without the benefit of the merit of Christ resulting in eternal punishment. Thus the author argues, again, in the 10th chapter of the book of Hebrews, for if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. But a fearful expectation of judgment, and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Now, the use of the word for at the beginning of that passage, for if we go on sinning deliberately, directs us back to a previous message as we looked at verses 19 through 25 of the 10th chapter of Hebrews, where the author summarized the, the truth 
about the person and work of Christ declared in the previous nine and a half chapters, orthodoxy, and then exhorted believers to live out that truth, orthopraxis. Now, I had to look up that word, orthopraxis, and that means correct behavior. Now, the author warns about living contrary to what he describes in verses 19 through 25. He says, if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth. He then describes a person similar to the one mentioned in Hebrews 6, 4 through 8, who appeared to be a believer, who had received the truth about Christ, orthodoxy, and appeared to be living it out, orthopraxis, but at some point rejected Christ and the truth about him. They refused to repent and go on sinning deliberately. Apostasy leaves one without any means to deal with sin. The original readers of this letter were Jewish believers who had received the truth about Christ as the once-for-all sacrifice to take away sin, thus fulfilling what the Old Testament sacrificial system represented and replacing it with a new covenant. Now they were being pressured to reject Christ, in other words, to apostatize. If they did, the author argues, where could they turn for atonement? They had turned from the sacrificial system governed by the law, and now they were threatening to reject Christ. If they did, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. If there no longer remained a way to deal with sin, one would die in his or her sin and face judgment as a guilty sinner. The author makes a lesser to the greater argument in verses 28 through 29 to show the reality of a fearful expectation of judgment. The Mosaic law imposed the death penalty for blaspheming God and idolatry in the books of Leviticus and Deuteronomy. If rejecting the law subjected one to judgment and the death penalty, how much more would rejecting Christ and his atoning work apply by the Spirit? The author writes in Hebrews 10.29, How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the Spirit of grace? The warning ends in verses 30 through 31 with the reality of everyone facing that judgment as we discussed under point one. The author appeals to Deuteronomy. Look at verse 31 of Deuteronomy 32. Pardon me. Look at verse 31 of Hebrews 10. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. The reason given is God will judge all mankind, even his people. He will take out vengeance, pour out his wrath on every guilty sinner. His justice will be satisfied. Those who stand in judgment without the benefit of Christ's merit will pay for their sin by suffering the second greater death, eternal torment in hell. Stop. For one to profess Christ and then reject him is life-threatening. Rejecting Christ today means one stands in judgment tomorrow without the benefits of Christ's meritorious redeeming work. To reject Christ results in a fearful expectation of judgment 
and a fury of fire that will consume a certain loss of eternal life. Turn back and embrace Christ genuinely by faith. In verses 32 through 34 of Hebrews 10, the author reminds his readers of the evidence of persevering faith in their lives. They had been enlightened concerning the truth of Christ, and by faith they had lived it out. They had faithfully endured suffering, public reproach, and affliction. They had come alongside others being persecuted, showed compassion for those in prison, demonstrated joy in the midst of possessions being plundered because of focusing on the eternal treasures. The author encouraged and commended them on being faithful in the face of intense persecution. In verse 39, he assured his readers he counted them as genuine believers. So how was his sober warning to work in their lives? Look at verses 35 through 36. The warning was to incentivize them to greater perseverance and faith. As genuine believers, he exhorted them to continue being confident in Christ by calling them to commit endurance, perseverance in the faith. Stay the course. Endurance and perseverance in doing the will of God would bring a great reward, receiving what God has promised in Christ. The author supported his exhortation by citing Habakkuk The warning was to encourage them to greater perseverance in faith. As a genuine believer, he exhorted them to continue being confident in Christ by calling them to commit to endurance, perseverance in the faith. Stay the course. Endurance and perseverance in doing the will of God would bring a great reward, receiving what God has promised in Christ. The author supported his exhortation by citing Habakkuk, a book out of the Old Testament, the righteous live by faith. Living by faith means we do not shrink back, reject Christ, and displease the Lord. In verse 39 of Hebrews 10, we learn that displeasing the Lord by shrinking back results in being destroyed. That is, one faces final judgment without the benefit of Christ's merit and must satisfy God's justice due for their sin with their own life in eternal torment. This sober warning was written primarily to believers to encourage them to heed the warning and to give them good reason to live safely and wisely by persevering in faith in Christ. Why is warning important to the genuine believer? Again, Hebrews 10, 31 says, It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. As we said in point one, all the dead will be raised to stand before the judgment seat of Christ. Even God's people will face judgment. The most significant question is this, how will you stand? Will you stand weighed down with sin and be found guilty and sentenced to eternal torment? Or... Will you stand pardoned by the blood of Christ and clothed in his righteousness, imputed by faith and ushered into glory? Will you face judgment with or without the merits of Christ's atoning work received by faith? Stop. Turn back from the prospect of facing judgment without Christ and flee to him in faith. For this text warns if you live like You have rejected Christ and stand on your own merit in judgment. 
you have a certain expectation to suffer eternal torment in hell. But if you persevere in faith and stand on the merit of Christ, you have a certain promise of glory in Emmanuel's land. Persevering faith in Christ today means standing in the merit of Christ in judgment tomorrow. Yeah, it is appointed to every man once a time to die and then the judgment. And we're not the ones who appoint that time. So, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. It would behoove you to be ready. Anyway, that was a, a message that I heard this morning by my pastor, and I've never done this before. But it was serious enough that I asked him if he would send it to me. And it is called Shrinking Back or Persevering in Faith. If you want to see the original, it will be on YouTube soon, I'm sure. Just uh, type in Covenant Presbyterian Church, Little Rock. So, I'm not good at predictions. But other people are. And I try to share with you the predictions that other people make. Especially what the Bible says, because it is God's infallible word, and he never makes a mistake. All right, that is our special September 11th anniversary Doc Washburn show. You've been listening to episode 237 of the all-new Doc Washburn show. The views and opinions expressed do not necessarily reflect those of our advertisers, but they love us and we love them. Today's program has been produced by Tim Terrible, directed by Mick Messy. This has been a terribly messy production. Portions of today's show will be taken overseas and dropped. If you like a transcript of today's episode of the all-new Doc Washburn Show, simply peel the roof off a Rolls-Royce panel truck and send it to Mansur's Computer Solutions, 7th floor of the Ephemeral B. Smoot Building, Whitehall, Arkansas, in care of Sheriff Mansur Sempier X. Well, that's the way it is. Sunday, September 11th, 2022.